Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Sam. And I'm Tessa. I don't know why we have it switched like I don't know either. Uh, all right. So, before Tovlo, before Rihanna, there was a musician whose name we steadfastly refused to pronounce correctly. That's right. I'm talking about Bjork. And because we're here to talk about Bjork, that must mean that joining us is one of Bjork's biggest fans. It's Jarrett. Oh, boy. Don't put that on me. <laughs> Too late. I did it. <laughs> According to this podcast, you're a Bjork super fan. <laughs> yep. Rolling set me up for uh, to be disappointed. <laughs> That's what we do on this podcast. Set things up for disappointment. <laughs> Yeah, as I said, today we are here to talk about Bjork, the only artist, and this is true, that I know and started to listen to because she was featured on an episode of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> That's it's appropriate. True. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Late 90s MTV thing. Yeah, the only thing I remember, I remember them watching that video and then John Mellencamp's pop singer. <laughs> If I if I wanted to learn to read, I'd go to school. <laughs> You've already lost me, it's like the, completely. <laughs> I, it's fine. How you how you doing, Jarrett? Uh, I'm good. <laughs> how's it How's it been going out there in Jarrett world? Fine, you know, <laughs> it, it's life. <laughs> I feel like that's a very loaded statement now. Oh yeah, no, I, I'm fine. Yeah, everything's good. So. I think this episode was my idea. I think I think I knew that you were a pretty big fan of this particular artist. And uh, this may be, I think it's the second episode I basically demanded into existence. The first one was the uh, Britpop one we did with Lazi earlier this year. But basically, I demanded you come on and educate us about Bjork. So let's start. Who is Bjork and, and why? <laughs> well... Bjork is a human from Iceland. Allegedly. I like that you have to clarify that for her. She is a human from Iceland. I don't know that that's true. Maybe. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think the I think the first thing I would like people to understand about Bjork is that Bjork has a whole career before mm -hmm. her solo career. And mm -hmm. I don't mean like she was in a band before a solo career. I mean, she released an album as a child. She spent a whole decade in a variety of bands, punk, post-punk, jazz fusion, um, culminating with like doing a, a album of Icelandic uh, tributes to jazz standards. Um, in the 80s, she got married. She had a child. So the Bjork that most people in our age range are familiar with is um, the second or third Bjork, um, depending on how you want to think of it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Bjork has one or two prequels. Um, you know, obviously, well, well, and you've already, Sam, you've already revealed your first exposure to yep. Bjork. 
I think it's maybe um, to bring up a topic that comes up on Monkey a lot. You know, it, maybe it's the boomers who might know Bjork from Sugar Cubes. Um, obviously, uh, Bjork is definitely a artist that I feel like it's beneficial to think of on a global scale. Mm-hmm. Um, Which we're classically Iceland. good at. Here. <laughs> <laughs> and also like having lived in many different countries uh including england quite a bit mm-hmm. you know so uh, depending on where you're from in the world you might think of Bjork uh, in a different perspective uh in your age your interests you know i've heard people say that they like sugar cubes but that's it you know things like that well, it's interesting, too, because when you I, I really like what you said about bringing boomers into this, which, first of all, how dare you? But, <laughs> you know, when we talk a lot about Generation X, a lot of times we're actually talking about boomer cuspers. Like uh, the most famous boomer X cusper is Obama. Right. He is actually a boomer, but just uh, a lot of the musicians, you know, from around quote unquote grunge are if not boomers really close to being the you know that and so there are there are some lines there that are that are kind of blurred the other thing that i was thinking about when you were talking about her early career is how would you have known you know you think about debut that came out in 93 i i know that of course the internet was not a thing for most people at that point Zine culture was not a thing for most people at that point. What was a thing for most people at that point who listened to music was MTV, maybe Rolling Stone, maybe Spin, and then down from there. But now we're getting into a very small number of people. We're getting to the, the, I subscribe to the sub pop catalog, very, very sub niche of, people who listen to music you know even a couple of years later uh when when garbage has their first album uh pop culture and the way that information goes has progressed to the point that it didn't take many people long to figure out that shirley manson wasn't a band before garbage and you could even buy that i don't think that was really the same thing even a couple years before at least from what i remember in my relatively sheltered suburban childhood which is another thing there were definitely communities of people who knew this stuff, but I I think it's a really good point to to bring up that this is a musician who had a whole life before most people in America knew her. And as I said before, nobody cares about that. It doesn't matter, right? Only her successful American career that started with debut matters. This is something we talked about with Lazi too, right? Surprisingly, music exists outside of this country. Who would have guessed? Who would have thought? I will also say that this episode is very exciting for me because I really haven't listened to a lot of Bjork, and that's because I was not alive in the 80s, and when debut came out in 93, I was three years old. So there was... You had just made your debut. I know, I had just made my debut. Uh, So, you know, and I know that she's had like a long career, and so there were probably plenty of times I could have jumped on the Bjork train, but let's face it... By the time that I was discovering my own music, because my parents did not listen to this kind of music, 
like it was kind of too late to be jumping on the Bjork train, like in terms of there was nobody who was going to say you should really listen to this, which after listening to this now, I'm like, how did I not like listen to this before? I mean, I had heard it's Army of Me, right? That's yes. the big song. Yeah. So I'd heard like some of her songs, but I hadn't really dug into her her work. So this this episode is a true monkey for me. I'm really fascinated to hear about the history of this artist because I really don't know much about her beyond what I've listened to for this episode. Army of Me on the Tank Girl soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Speaking of very, very 90s things. I really wish we could have said it's a black swan for you. <laughs> But she wore a white swan dress. It was Tom York, her one-time collaborator, who has a song called Black Swan. So I apologize. <laughs> um, just a few things to asterisk on that of like, mm-hmm. how would you know about Bjork? Um, I did learn today, Sugar Cubes were on SNL in 1988. So I don't know if that was her first appearance on American television or, or on major american television but it's certainly an early one i would assume the sugar cubes were maybe occasionally on mtv i'm not mm-hmm. sure i did watch some mtv in the 80s via vhs tapes that were recorded by one of my mother's co-workers i don't remember sugar cubes from that but so the movie juniper the juniper tree comes out in 1990 that is an icelandic film icelandic fantasy film and then she is featured on a 808 State single in 1991, which I believe you would pronounce oops. That's how it's spelled anyways. <laughs> it's very deceptive. I'm willing to bet. I'm trying to think when MTV started being more uh, programming heavy, you know, like you would, there was a point probably in the early 90s, but perhaps in the late 80s where they really started cordoning off you know, anything that wasn't really top 40, you know, uh, they had Headbangers Ball, uh, 120 Minutes. I know you know, but I, I I wonder, you know, and that that was a thing that was really good for a lot of people because you knew when, you, you know, like Yo! MTV Raps was going to be on and you knew that there was going to be a showcase, you know, all these things. But at the same time, you really started to, like I said, cordon off people and bands that didn't really fit a very narrow definition of mainstream, which is odd considering that when debut did come out in 93 human behavior, which is a whole thing that is a very different song and it is a very different video, but it got quite a bit of airplay and it, it, charted uh on two different billboard charts at number two on alternative airplay and dance so it's interesting to see that in her maybe third career or third phase of her career she breaks through with this song human behavior and i don't know that's that's not is the first michelle gondry music video is it did he he direct? Well, that explains a lot. I did not know that, and that explains a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is a Michelle Gondry music video. Um, a few of hers are him. Army of Me is also mm-hmm. him. Um, Bachelorette, and actually, I didn't realize that uh, the Crystalline video too, which is a much more uh, recent one. Hmm. Well, it's nice to know he's still working. 
<laughs> I, he definitely had a moment. I mean, there were, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, Spike Jones, I guess, also comes to mind. Yeah, she's worked with him too. Right. I mean, but there were a few really big uh, music video directors who really had a moment with, with features. And Michelle Gondry is definitely, I think, along with Spike Jones and then the other guy I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. We're definitely the the poster children of that movement. Well, the director series is Michelle Gondry, the first one, but it's it's him, Spike Jones, Chris Cunningham, some other people I can't remember. Mm-hmm. One of the very few things that I did read about her before this episode was that she has collaborated with a lot of people, mm-hmm. many of whom I don't know because I'm too young to know but i did think that's really interesting that she seems to have either the relationships with a lot of people in the music industry which might be because her career has been so long or she just has a lot of pull people seem to really like working with her wouldn't want to like it would i i i mean listen if you asked me today hey do you want to like collaborate in some form or fashion with bjork what do you, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> who who would do that? <laughs> who would do that? <laughs> I think part of what you're getting at Tessa is the myth of the solo artist, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we have this concept of all these people like Madonna or a name I hesitate to even invoke out of fear, um Beyoncé, you know, that they're like these um or, or even, you know, the auteur theory comes into this, too. This idea that these people are, like, working in a vacuum and cr- single-handedly creating these great things. And no one, no one works that way. Literally, no one works that way. <laughs> I mean, you could say, like, maybe Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. You could maybe pick out very few examples of music that would fit into that. I, I've got one for you. Yeah. Brian Wilson's smile. And I don't mean the one he eventually released. I think that one qualifies. And I think it proves the point. <laughs> but weren't there like dozens and dozens of musicians who worked on that? Well, I, I, mean, I don't know I, much about that. Yeah, the, the bit is is that smile was something that, that he basically, I mean, I'm going to get this, I'm going to oversimplify, but basically he kicked everybody out burnt the whole thing down. I'm trying to remember who he actually, when they went back and put smile together, it's a big collaboration with, um, I want to say it's Van Dyke parks. Is that right? Yeah, probably. That sounds right. But I mean, you're right. I mean, the closest you can get, I think pretty easily is, is, um, I mean, we've seen some things from the Beatles where there are very few people who are doing something at to the point where people in the band are excluded, which is part of the reason all that happened. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think I completely agree with you, Jared. I think my original point was just like, it is interesting that there are so many different names associated with hers. Um, And I think that that just says something about the kind of artist she is. I'm just angry. We brought up auteur theory in a music episode. (laughs) I thought we were safe. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tessa. What did you, what did you think about? So you, I know you listened to the debut first, right? Yes, because I listened to the the uh, albums we listened to. I listened to in order. I'm so proud of you. 
Um, I mean, like, I like doing that when I'm doing these music episodes because it, I like being able to kind of track how an artist or a, a genre evolves over time. And in this case, it was very cool to, like, listen to these albums. And I want to go back and listen to the ones that I haven't listened to. But I really liked Debut. It's very rare. We talk a lot about, like, genre crossover, especially nowadays because genre is be- in music is becoming increasingly meaningless um, to a lot of people because there are so many musicians that are sort of playing with those lines and kind of um, crossing over them or, you know, doing different genres on the same album. But at this point, from, from what I know, obviously, again, very young, it was very unusual for someone to be blending genres quite like this. Um, the fact that she's doing like pop, but also electronic dance, but also she's doing like some things that kind of sound like jazz and some things that sound like trip hop. Um, she's really like weaving them together, though, into something completely new. It doesn't sound disjointed at all, which sometimes these albums can sound like. But she I mean, but she sounds so like herself. Like this is like something that she has a point of view. She has something to say. And it's only if you're really listening for it that you can kind of hear like, OK, like this is a thread of electronic. This is a thread of um, of trip hop. The only person I can really think of off the top of my head that I really like that can do this, although she does it in a very different way, is Janelle Monet. Like the idea that she can like create something that's so seamless, but it's composed of all of these different kinds of music. The other thing that really stuck out to me, and this is something that we can talk about throughout all the albums, is this use of instruments that are not normally heard on pop albums. Like she uses organs a lot, which I I appreciate. I I just don't hear that a lot on most pop albums. And so like being able to hear that and hear, you know, flutes and um, other types of different kinds of instruments, I thought worked pretty well. And then the other thing I was going to mention, since this was the first full album that I listened to, there are a few people she reminds me of. And again, like these are either people who perhaps influenced her or perhaps were influenced by her in no particular chronological order. Um, there's a lot of Kate Bush in here. There's a lot of Tori Amos. Um, at times, the sound kind of reminded me of Phoebe Bridgers. At times, some of the songs did. Um, and Meg Myers, who I always say is the spiritual descendant of Kate Bush. I'll, I'll just jump in real fast before Jarrett says it. One of the things leveled at Tori Amos is that she rips off Kate Bush. Well, no, I understand so. <laughs> that. That's why I grouped yeah. them together. Yeah. yeah. And and I hate to say this, but like, because I like all the people I just mentioned. I don't like this next group. Sorry, Lizzie. There's also a lot of Dresden dolls in here, too. Oh boy. Um, and so, like, you know, it's really interesting to me because she does sound like so unique. And part of that is her vocal range, which is incredible. But she does have like she is kind of, you know, she's clearly influenced a lot of people and been influenced by a lot of people. And so, like, I can tell kind of where she sits in the music, these different musical traditions. But she is still like very unique in her own right. Yeah, I think, again, it's a little telling that all the people you're mentioning are American or at least very, very Westernized. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the only reason to mention that is to again, highlight the fact that York has been working in professional music since the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. And part of that, and and part of the reason I bring that up is because from her recent podcast, one of the things that it made me think about more was how she had traveled the world with musicians many, many times before embarking on this solo tour. And so, you know, 
a lot of artists are a, in the 90s are a product of 80s punk and stuff mm-hmm. like that. York's one of the few who actually was a part of it and then mm-hmm. evolved with the trends and, you know, being electronic music and stuff like that. And I just think there's a certain, on a certain level, it's hard to, I'm just going to be full, uh, fangirl on this podcast and, and not apologize. Please, please do not apologize. You know, anyone who's listening to this being like, well, yeah, you think that you love Bjork. Yeah. That's why we're here. We're here to love Bjork. (laughs) I will accept no other purpose. But I think like my first exposure to her as a teenager in the 90s is from the song Big Time Sensuality, mm-hmm. which has a couple of versions. Yes. Like uh, I think a lot of fans, I actually prefer the less popular album version. But right. that's a song that like the version most people have heard is an electronic remix. And the video is one that's been extremely influential Vanessa Carlton reference insert. And I feel like it's hard to prove this, but I feel like for me and a lot of other people of my age range, Bjork is a gateway into a lot of the things that she has influenced or she has been influenced by as well. Debut is almost a misleading title of this album then. Well, like, I think it's a purpose I think it's purposely titled that for her to emphasize that you know, this is a new chapter, if you will. Right, but I you know, your point about the fact that she'd been involved in music for so long before this, like this almost doesn't sound like a debut album at all because it's so mm-hmm. it's so composed and so layered and she obviously is experimenting but has had enough experience to know how all of these elements fit together. You know, when you talking through what you just talked through, Jared, it reminded me of a lot of things. It it definitely reminded me of a discourse that becomes toxic very quickly, right? There's always somebody who's more indie than you, right? And uh I I really like, you know, talking about things through this framework of things we love and and talking about things as gateways to other things. I think that's really helpful because when you when you talk about how she might be a gateway to other types of music, you're not looking backward and going, well, if you were cool, you would have known two steps ago. No, uh, this is somebody who's able to introduce you to a lot of other things, which is a much better way of looking at it. You reminded me of uh, the the way you were talking about Bjork is a way that, again, American and New York to boot, but uh, reminds me a lot of the way that people talk about Sonic Youth. I can see some similarities there in in kind of that progression. But the other thing that, like me, Jarrett, you lived through the 90s and remember the world music thing because Mm -hmm. world music was a category. That's a genre. No, it's not. It's everybody who's not from here or for England or maybe Australia a couple (laughs) times. I mean, like, it it really says something. When when one of the biggest pieces of world music from the 80s is everything Paul Simon did. (laughs) Okay? And And then the other thing that I think of when you said that was like, 
How long did it take us to get another Icelandic act? It was 2000 before another Icelandic act broke through. Thanks, Cameron Crowe. Just remember, for every bad thing he did, he gave us secret roast, guys. Of course, Peter Gabriel is is also on that soundtrack and lots of other REMs on that. That was a good soundtrack. Anyway, <laughs> my favorite song from debut is Venus is a Boy. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I, I, I think that I just really like that song. It's, it's, it's very different from human behavior and big time sensuality. I mean, they're all very clearly done by the same artist, but I think that's one of the things I'd really like to say about this, this first album is that it, it does. It's very, if you will, Whitman-esque. I think that's something. Oh, you I can like say. that comparison. Actually. It contains multitudes. Everything she does, does contain multitudes. All right. So when this isn't really a Jarrett assigns episode, but Jarrett assigned the albums that we would listen to for this episode. I should have mentioned that earlier, but I mention it now to say that the next album up that Jarrett had us listen to was homogenic, which is a great album. But as Jarrett knows, I have a question. Why did we skip post? Why did we skip the album that is that that's got, it's got the songs on it, man. It's got hyper ballad. It's got army of me. It's got it's oh so quiet. I mean, there's two ways to look at that. <laughs> One is which is a world in which uh, this podcast is just Volnokira uh, forward, and that's all we talk about Fair. for two hours. But I was trying to be nicer and more like democratic and inviting to people who aren't familiar with Bjork and then in in trying to narrow down yep. the albums for us to talk about or to to assign to you guys to listen to at the time I was still trying to decide how this would be how we would go through this but um that ended up being the solution but uh to me I don't there's not much that I have to say about Post that doesn't also apply to Debut, and I feel like Debut is the the one that gets overlooked in that mm. quadrilogy of, if we want to extend the ultimate trilogy of pop albums of Post, Homogenic, and Vespertine. But. That's interesting. That is an interesting way to look at it. Uh, I do want to say also really quickly, there was, we had considered where you had considered a couple different ways, as you just alluded to, of of doing, well, more than a couple, a few. But you have also assembled, and we're going to put this in the notes for the show. Yes, yes Tessa? Mm-hmm. Uh, a link to a YouTube playlist. And so really, I, I think before we really talk about homogenic, uh, there was another way to to think about this. I'm always, when we do these music episodes, I'm like, let's listen to albums. Because I think more people need to listen to albums, frankly. But there was another completely legitimate way to do this. Uh, do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, and I will also say that playlist is ever evolving, both because music on YouTube is an ever evolving thing, and things get <laughs> taken down and DMCA'd and whatever. Um, it's basically I tried to hit the highlights of her decades long career 
in chronological order. In some spots, I keep moving things around because I realize, oh, that's not where it should be. Some things are out of chronological order because I just think that's where they should be for various reasons. But um, it's over 50 videos, uh, some of which are very short, but most of which are like music videos or... So like the Sugar Cubes entry in that is one of the more popular things people use for stock footage when they're making videos about Bjork, which is like a TV performance where they do three songs, I think. So that's one of the longer videos. And then I really feel like, to me personally, the pinnacle of like Bjork for me is... You know, Live at Shepherd's Bush Empire, Biophilia Live, the orchestral, like it's almost three hours, the orchestral concert video from her, the more recent incarnation of her tour, or I think it like predates, it's, she's like touring two different shows right now, and I think it's a early version of the all string version of that, of her current tour, that, so that's on YouTube, um, but Things like that are peak Bjork for me. And I don't mean like a specific year or specific one or anything, but just some of those things. So I did not put the reason I mentioned those here is because I did not put those on the playlist because Mm -hmm. I was trying to keep it to, you know, shorter videos, um, individual songs, individual interview snippets and stuff. Gotcha. And it's it's the highs and lows, you know, as I would see them. But some things that. I feel like are big moments in pop culture for her and also like trying to sample a little bit of each album and stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, we, we talk about this from time to time with different bands or musical acts as much as I am like pro album, because I want people to not forget about them is the occasional artist that is perhaps better suited for uh, the, the live performance or, or that they're an artist who isn't contained by an album. And if you try to constrain them, you know, like Janelle Monae, as you brought up earlier, Tessa, I will say though, before diving into homogenic, that hyper ballad, I think upon further review is, is my favorite song by her. So I know that's really basic, but that's one. okay. It's a good song. Now, <laughs> in the, the first in a string of questions that are meant to antagonize you, but to really draw out more of your expertise, is Homogenic considered the best album of hers by quote-unquote casual listeners and critics? Um, well, I think, you know, when r slash bjork does a survey of albums it's usually number two um but that's those the bjork fans so then yes (laughs) (laughs) is is homogenic her best album jared no why not (laughs) not not what 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 We'll get to which one's best if you're actually able to answer that question, which is a perfectly valid answer to the question. But why is it not her? What is it about the album that I guess what I'm trying to say is not what what's not. It's not what is the best album, but what is it that makes this album, which is gen, it's it's pretty good. 
what's lacking from it that exists elsewhere, I guess. That's that's a weird way to define what album is best. It is. The best album <laughs> the best album is the one that doesn't lack something, so Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't I told you I'm to just trying to draw you out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now trying to define what's the best album ever. What what album in the history of music lacks the least? <laughs> <laughs> it's also a Brian Wilson album. And it's probably some like experimental jazz album yeah. like a, a fellow Bjork collaborator Mike Patton working with like mm-hmm. who's the experimental jazz guy that he worked with a lot but I can't remember the project but like there's some avant-garde album that he worked on where like there's a like a 30 second song that has every mm-hmm. genre yeah no i know what you're talking about i will not come up with the name of 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 any of that but i do know what you're talking about but okay so (laughs) let me just try again so all right homogenic john zorn is the artist i was trying to think of okay i was on wikipedia sorry okay um no i do have an answer to your question i know what you're asking so my my like Again, as the fangirl, like the the Bjork thing for me is so much more about her defining a vision and reality for a period or the whole multimedia experience of an era. And and again, I think if you listen to her podcast series, this really gets emphasized. That never happens for her in the nineties. The 90s mm-hmm. is okay. her interacting with like the London dance culture that she is a part of um, and being, I don't want to say influenced by, but being like second chair to a lot of the men she's working with. And I, I'm not like criticizing them. I'm not like mm-hmm. saying like, well, I'm post like tricky, like was, uh, you know, dictating what those songs were going to be like or something. That's not what I mean so much as despite working in the industry so long and like coming Mm. from a background of being in bands, which are, you know, different thing. It's not until the 21st century where Bjork is like, no, I'm, I am the author of my own work. (laughs) Well, that's really Uh, interesting. Especially like she barely gets any producer credits and as Mm. her career goes along, those increase and Tobogenic is a turning point for that. Like she does define a lot of that. And I definitely think for that period of Bjork interacting with pop culture, it's the best one partially Mm -hmm. because it is cohesive rather than the pastiche that Tessa was talking about. (laughs) Well, you know, that's really interesting that you mentioned that it really is the 21st century when the turn happens, because that is really just after she has spent time working with Lars von Trier and Tom York, which we'll we'll talk about here in a minute. But I, I think that's really interesting hearing that. But the, the other things that really strike me about Homogenic is, you know, it's got it's it's also got some really recognizable songs on it. Yoga, Bachelorette, Hunter. And I read, I, I didn't know this a lot. I mean, I'm like, of course, All is Full of Love has to be the best Bjork song, right? It just has to be. <laughs> has to be. And the music video has robots, but, you guys. But which but version? 
Which version well, of all of Exactly. I mean, that's part of it too. But the <laughs> other thing that I thought that was interesting that I read was that it is almost tacked on. It has a, it's like a kind of tacked on quality and she considers it like track zero for Vespertine, which that was, that was a bit of a surprise to me. Although it's not a surprise that these albums are, are tied together. But the other thing that I think we should mention at this point, so react to any and all of these things. But the other thing that I think we should mention at this point is the cover of Homogenic. Because if there's anything that she's carried through her career very, very purposefully and consistently, it is the way that her face transforms from album to album. And you start with debut, which is a very, you could call it simple. I mean, you should do so at your own risk. But I mean, comparatively, it's, it's her face. But so are most of the other album covers. But by the time you get to Homogenic, you're like, oh, we're doing a thing, aren't we? We're, we have a plan here. Um, and you can kind of like, Utopia, why do you have to scare me like that? We'll get there. But, <laughs> you know, this, this evolution of uh, the album cover as self-portrait, I think, is something that speaks in, in the genre of album favor when there are so many other ways to consider her work. Just since there you go. That's a lot the of cover. stuff. I don't. I don't know if this is the first time she works with Alexander McQueen, but that it's pro- it's probably the most notable for uh, beginning of their many collaborations. So, what should we take away from Homogenic? Other than other than the you know the the cohesive nature of the album, it's 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 a drop in album. You can drop in somebody on it and say, "Here, listen to this." Um, you pointed out that it's part of a, uh, a trio of albums in, you know, in the discourse that could be extended to debut, as you said, but what, what should we really take away from it beyond all that? I mean, I think, gosh, it's such a, (laughs) I'm trying to (laughs) succinctly answer that question. Good luck. You know, I, I do feel like it is in certain ways a if I could be objective for a moment, it's certainly a peak in the first wave of uh, electronic music. You know, if you want to ignore like disco and, and kraut rock and stuff um, and like, you know, Vangelis, that kind of thing, John Carpenter and just like techno, I guess she uses the term techno a lot. So um, even into like describing her current, uh, tour so let's say it's like a peak of techno hybridizing with pop music you know she's working with mark bell for example on that album she uses the term volcanic beats a lot to describe the early stages of working on that album and so i think also the, the takeaway is uh, Bjork as this person who synthesizes the organic and uh, mechanical or electric or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and I think I mean this is not this is not surprising if you've watched debut. I'm not trying to say that like or if you've listened to debut. I'm not trying to say debut is restrained in any way, but this album she definitely feels even more unrestrained in terms of like her vocal. Like um, her vocals, they're very emotional in a lot of ways um, that I find 
really interesting. I mentioned her voice has an incredible range earlier. Like she, I don't know if I've ever actually heard a voice that sounds like hers um, because she can kind of go from something that's more melodic to something that's a little bit more um, raw and shouty is the wrong word, but like kind of shouty. Um, And I feel like I could hear that more on this album than I could on the first album we listened to. Again, I think it's something that is unique to Western ears. And, and I speak from this partially from ignorance myself, is that I think if you listen to more of what even in the 90s would have been called world music or like avant-garde music from the middle of the 20th century and stuff, I think you hear a lot more of that. But the average person, understandably, is not doing that, myself included. And I'm not saying that like, Bjork is taking those influences consciously or anything. I just think, again, as a citizen of the world, she's less bound to what's on the radio or whatever. (laughs) Right. Well, and you see, like, that's the that's one of the things that as I was listening to this, I was like, how did someone not introduce me to this at some point? Because I am a fan of like that kind of vocal vocalizations, especially in pop, especially in rock, because, yeah, in pop. Pop is very emotional, but vocally it's often very um, managed in some ways. And it's very, it's not very raw. It's very like, I'm trying to think of the right word here. Like, Pop music it, is a lot about very, hiding the strings. Right. And like this, she, like people like, for example, Kate Bush, which I love, or Meg Myers or someone like that, they're more interested in using their voices to like, show that emotional range um, and they're not as restrained. Um, but most pop vocalists are pretty restrained, even if they're singing about something that's very remo- emotional. So it is really interesting to me to kind of slot her into that tradition. And like you said, that might be more of a tradition outside the U.S., which both the people that I just mentioned, one of them is a U.S. person, the other one isn't. And so like it is it's just interesting that I had never really encountered her before knowing the other things that I like in my music. Well, you know, you know, I know you grew up Tessa with, with at least one parent who would have said this. I know both of my parents have said it, Jared, I don't know about you, but I have definitely heard both of my parents on multiple occasions, utter the phrase, that's not music. And the response is, well, that's not music you like is, is the real answer. Right. And, you know, so what we're getting at is, you know, pop music is is a very narrow definition of music. I think, Jarrett, what you said about hiding the strings is, is very good. And I think that, God, this is going to sound really second wave feminist, feminist, but, you know, when you think about managed pop music, which is a very narrow thing on the spectrum, you're tending to ignore you're tending to ignore things that are less constrained and just because of the way that is perhaps more natural, which I think is where the volcanic beats idea comes in. It's kind of that naturalistic closer to the earth thing, but it's also, as I said, that second wave feminism thing of, of music uh, experienced uh, through the body you know, the body rooted through the earth. I mean, it's, it's a more, it's a, it's a bigger exploration of things. 
and 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 the last thing I'll say on that is this is this is something I've said for a very long time. It's not original. It's not popular, but a really good example because we think about pop music as you know like Ariana Grande, you know, like you know that kind of pop music, right? But but another way to talk about pop music that really illustrates this point very well is like the Pixies, "Loud, Quiet, Loud." Or quiet, loud, quiet, depending on what you want to do. That's very pop forward. Nirvana is a very successful pop band because it's very, it's that very constrained focus on this very narrow definition of what music is. It's good. I like it. But to think that, you know, Kurt Cobain is unrestrained and raw is not very true. It can be, and, and it is at times, but. When you compare, you know, Bjork's a really good mainstream example. And there are much better examples that none of us have ever heard of, obviously. But it's a, it's a very different ballgame you're playing. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, Jarrett, you're right. Well, and <laughs> as you were saying that, and as I was thinking about what Jarrett had said earlier about where she came from musically, do you think that that's more of a punk thing? than a pop thing like the the idea of those vocals is she kind of taking that vocal aesthetic and dragging it through like a more pop focus i think punk is still pop but that's me well (laughs) (laughs) Um, well the thing is like and i think you know i think part of the reason it's important to like you know watch a, a video of her performing with sugar cubes is comparatively that's a very restrained bjork the Bjork that you're talking about, the one who like looks like she's conducting conducting an orchestra when she's singing, regardless of it, whether there's an orchestra around or not, is pop Bjork. Like that's Bjork live, that's solo, if you will. So I don't think so. I, I think the the years and years of uh, doing jazz and punk and co- every combination in between certainly you know, influences everything she does. But I also think the answer to that specific question you're asking is no. You know, it's, it's funny as you're, as you're talking. So the whole time we're recording this episode, Jarrett has his, uh, I assume the YouTube playlist playing behind him over, over his shoulder. (laughs) And what we were watching while you were just talking was a clip of her performing at uh, the Tibetan freedom concert. Which I, I, this is, this is such a good lead into my next question. It was very convenient. You know, the Tibetan Freedom Concert was, was a real big deal. You know, we've got, you know, the Beastie Boys kind of put that, you know, the biggest names behind that. Um, but it was a very popular thing. Uh, I believe the California funk rock band Red Hot Chili Peppers were associated <laughs> with that. I know Pearl Jam was. And here she is. You know, in the mid '90s, at the the height of this pop culture relevance, and so I have a bunch of questions under the heading of Vespertine, the album that came out in 2001, that I know just annoy you to no end, Jarrett. So let's just start. Is Vespertine the end, or at least the beginning of the end, of her pop cultural relevance? I have to use the analogy of, and I don't, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know the term, but like, (laughs) 
the thing that you see on legal shows where like there's a court case going on and someone presents evidence and the opposition is like, we haven't had a chance to review this. <laughs> That's how I felt getting these show notes. Like when I woke up this morning you like, oh, that's, I didn't know you bad. were going to attack me. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. I thought it was this was going to be a pleasant conversation about the things that you guys found that you enjoyed in all this content. That's what we do on Monkey Off My Backlog. We attack people with love. <laughs> uh, we Apparently the subject of this uh, podcast is can we make Jarrett cry? <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, the 90s are over. Like, come on. Like, everyone's favorite thing from the 90s. People at, like, somebody asked me at Pearl Jam if their pop culture relevance ended in the year 2000. Somebody ask. Did it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Are they still together and making good music? Also, yes. Not the point. Isn't every 90s act irrelevant? One of the things that I learned in preparing for this and... Is it review? Is that the stage of the legal battle <laughs> where they look at all the evidence? Discovery. Is the only discovery. We, we yeah. hit you with late discovery. discovery Burke yes. is the only female artist who headlined Coachella twice. And guess what? Those both happened in the odds. Wow. And she's performing at Coachella this month, not headlining, but she is the featured Most. artist before Frank Ocean. Well, he's gone, so... She is now opening for, is it Blink-182? It's Blink-182, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, what's, Frank Ocean talked out. What's their age again? They're oh, not relevant God. anymore. I think she's more well, relevant you, you than you they are. You mentioned Red Hot Chili Peppers, and speaking of Coachella, it is sometimes depressing how much her career like parallels Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> like Going back even to like thinking about mm-hmm. you know, her origins. <laughs> yeah, that's... that's Aw, poor Jarrett. <laughs> okay here's i think there's a more generous way to ask this question so obviously she's been making very good music for the past 20 plus years of the 21st century i don't think anybody's going to take that away and if they do they're wrong and you know the accolades the the things that she's done would seem to make it to where we would answer that question of relevance with a no. But the reason I asked the question is that in terms of pop culture relevance, when you, when you think about, and this has been the theme of the whole episode, Jared, I think that you've kind of made it is that Bjork is somebody who lives outside of our American cultural consciousness, except during the nineties where she was a part of it. And then she exited stage right wearing a swan dress, right? The uh, Name me a time where you hear her brought up as a pop culture reference when it's not about the swan dress. I mean, I can't answer that question, but I was going to say, <laughs> if you're going to say maybe is this the end of her pop culture relevance, are, aren't you kind of looking at that from like a U.S. centric oh, perspective? But, like, that's, but that's the point. Uh, is is that this is somebody who has managed to to persevere, keep ma- making music, be very successful outside of this thing 
that we, we being Americans, who we are afraid of, David Bowie, who, who think we define everything. And I think if nothing else, she's a case that defies that to say, no, you're, you're not It's like Hannah Gadsby. We were just talking about her yeah. last week. Hannah Gadsby joked that making fun of Americans is for now still punching up, but not for long. And so when I talk about pop culture relevance, I'm definitely talking about, you know, that kind of very narrow ethnocentric in many ways, American view. Are you saying that the U.S. has very short pop culture attention spans compared to perhaps other places? Well, I think it does now. I think it had a very, I think it's always had a very narrow Gotcha. Yeah. I do think it's starting to get a very short attention span as well. But I think that's one of the reasons at the end of the day to talk about Bjork in the way that we do. It's to establish that this did happen. This pop culture gaze that America has is very fickle. And the swan dress was the end of it for her, which is probably a good thing. All said, I think as many people as not who have fallen out of the eye of the public have said it was great. It was the best thing that could have ever happened because then I could be me if you don't get crushed by it. That is, which we've also seen a lot of. I, you know, I already mentioned the Coachella feature uh, headlinings, but, you know, I, I do think in, in a post MTV world, you know, Bjork is a very MTV multimedia artist <laughs> who finds ways to continue to be multimedia in a post MTV, post Carson Daly world. Um, post Carson Daly on MTV, I should say. He's, he's, still, <laughs> he's still with us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But I, I, I do think, you know, so how do you measure popularity? Obviously charts or something of that, but I think mm -hmm. understandably that's kind of pointless to talk about USA wise with her. But if we just want to look at it from another American perspective, over a third of her Grammy nominations are post Vespertine. She still has not won one. But I, I partially mentioned that not because I care about the Grammys, but because <laughs> I did mention to Tessa that this kind of functions as an appendix to your Grammys yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, for Lozzie's benefit, I guess, like we could say her solo Brit win. She does have many Brit Award nominations, but her only win was in 2016. So... The British music intelligentsia don't certainly don't think her relevance ended there. I was about to say, I, I really kind of want to know if Lozzie right now, while he's listening to this, is just like, what are you talking about? Like, I wonder if like he and like the British music scene have a very different view of her than we do. I would imagine well, so. Just, I mean, just remember at the point that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, again, the Internet is not what it is. We, we think about globalization as a word that really started to take over in the late 90s, the early 2000s. There were the World Trade Organization protests slash riots in Seattle in uh, 99. Clinton signed NAFTA later on in the 90s. We, the Forever War starts in 2001. The proliferation of the internet we become a much more globalized place. I'm being very vague on purpose around the time that Vespertine comes out. And, you know, so when you think about 
even Lazi having like a complete different view of the world than us. Again, going back to the Hannah Gadsby book that I was talking about last week, she would say the same thing about Australia. And and I think sometimes we forget or well, I don't think you forget. I try not to forget. Well, you weren't there. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, for the most part, like, most of what you remember is a very globalized world. And for the record, that's good. Because we do get exposed to more things. Um, We don't need Cameron Crowe to introduce us to world music as much as we needed to. The fact that we needed to and that he was the one who did it should tell you a lot of things that were problematic before. But I think that's part of the reason why I ask about that, that pop cultural relevance. Like, I, I really, I wish I could define it in a better way, but it's a, it's a thing. It's fake. It's artificial. It's very American. It's kind of gross, as Tori Amos would say. But it's real. And I just think Bjork's a very interesting figure because she kind of, you know, very easy to not have, she's a very good musician. Very excellent musician. Very done a lot of things. But she could very easily be a zero part of your life. No part of your life whatsoever. And that's part of the function of the way that pop culture worked prior to globalization in the late 90s, early 2000s. Which is why I asked the question. So naturally, we need to talk about Lars von Trier a little bit. Jarrett. <laughs> I have not been able to watch Dancer in the Dark. I, I watched like the first 10 minutes and was too depressed because I was on my own. I was like, I have to watch this with somebody or I will not survive. Wow. It, the first 10 minutes depressed you. Yes. Don't watch the whole movie. <laughs> oh, man. But Selma songs is good. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's um that's certainly maybe third wave of my you know history with Bjork is that period and listening to that album a lot with friends you know but Vespertine era is probably the period of my life that I'm listening to her the most you know other than this past week or two when I've been re-listening to like everything it's certainly the album I've listened to the most and I think in the context of Von Trier, one thing that I just want to say is I feel like, like a lot of women, um, or non-cis men, you know, or, or non-men, especially with the Western media, Bjork has been a victim of misogyny. And I think also there's an extra level where it's not just, it's not like the same misogyny that takes down or, or victimizes Britney Spears, for example. It's this like othering misogyny where she gets put in this context of like a fantasy creature um, that I think is extremely infantilizing uh, considering that she is one of the elders of alternative and pop music. Um, We've firmly established that. And, And again, that it's a very fangirl thing of like to be, take it personally the way that she's treated in the media and like, the swan dress is, is also a perfect moment, but it's to to epitomize that. But I also feel most of the time if Bjork is trending on social media, it's people being shitty to her about the way she dresses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's infuriating, honestly. It really annoys me. And it's part of the reason I hate the internet. 
Well, <laughs> <laughs> just that one reason. Um, I, you know, the other thing that I read about her, again, I don't know very much about her, but I do know that she she has self-diagnosed, and I don't know if she's received official diagnosis or not, but she has self-diagnosed as autistic. And I do think that the kind of misogyny that you're talking about is often filtered through like a very ableist, very neurotypical, like, oh, well, she's she's quirky and she's weird. And, um, you know, that can be taken in a very like fetishizing sort of way um, by some people, but it can also be taken in a very, like you said, othering way. Like, oh, she's so weird. Like, look at the way that she interacts with the world. Look at the way that she dresses. Look at the way that she, you know, and often autistic people or just neuroatypical people in general are often infantilized in that way. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right. I, it is misogyny, but it's also misogyny. Like, like you said, it's not like the misogyny that's leveled at Britney Spears. It's misogyny filtered through like that ableist neurotypical lens. I also think she, she this is maybe not the, well, no, this is also the time to reference this. Cause I think it kind of connects to, her not getting away with wearing the swan dress, which is this perspective of how dare you not care more about making money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and is this when we talk about Matthew Barney? If you like. So I do think her relationship with the artist Matthew Barney is essential to understanding why her career has the trajectory it does because her output over this century is influenced by both like her romantic and familial familial relationship with him. They were married for almost a decade, decade and a half. So you have a child together and they had a big contentious divorce, which influenced um, an album that we're not going to really talk about. But Vespertine is certainly the beginning of his uh, influence on her career in the sense of like, not just like, well, he dictated things or she changed because of him, but like things they did together, working on drawing restraint nine, living on a, a whaling ship, for example, influences her work in many ways. Um, And again, with Vespertine, she collaborates with Alexander McQueen on several things. The cover, the uh, the dress that she wears, and the greatest music video of all time, um, <laughs> which is pagan poetry. But you know, I think speaking as someone who has been in long term relationships with many different types of artists, you know, I feel like that heavily influences you um, or anyone in that situation, and. I think that's a turning point for her where she's even more encouraged to look at her body of work as performance art, as artistic rather than commercial. And it continues. It still continues with her output. I think I understand a little bit more why you've said what you said about auteur theory based on that. Because the way that you were just discussing their relationship, well, yeah, unless you've never interacted with anyone else ever in your entire life, I mean, that challenges what it means to be the sole creator of a work, right? Because you're influenced by not just other artists, but the people in your life, sometimes who are both at the same time. 
it, it does strike me though, thinking about her and I guess perhaps other people that, you know, the reason why I don't have a problem with auteur theory is that I guess I just don't think of it the same way. I think of it as she is the only person who is able to filter her own experiences, part of which are, or the most of which are with other people and influenced by other people, but she's still the ultimate filter and distillation of those experiences, even if she's not the only one who created them or affected them. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that's really, I think it's an interesting way to think about it, you know, about how, you know, being in, you know, that kind of relational aspect of life really does determine the kinds of things we do, artists or no. I just think it's funny. We're, we're kind of saying the same, we're kind of making opposite arguments using the same data. (laughs) It's, it's funny that way. Art's funny. (laughs) I think another person who's, who's interesting to like compare Bjork to, you mentioned Kate Bush, certainly. Uh, careers that have a dialogue and people who are friends and interact in many different ways despite having not really collaborated but there are very similar trajectories to those two careers but compare those career trajectories for example to Billie Eilish I was gonna mention her much... but then I got too scared too so I just did it <laughs> but someone who's from the very beginning said no I'm gonna this is how I'm gonna do it and if you're not okay with that, then just fuck off. And so many male artists have had that privilege throughout the whole history of pop music. Well, just music in general. Western music, anyways. Just just um, history. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Bjork has to, has to achieve great things to earn that, um, which is often the trajectory for popular artists is like make it and then you can afford to be actually be an or an artist but that's the kate bush experience whereas Billie eilish is like no i'm gonna direct my own video i i did one with someone else i didn't like it i'm directing my own videos now like people i this is so cliche and again like you said earlier sam is very like second wave feminism but people like kate bush and bjork made it so that people like Billie eilish can exist honestly well, it's interesting that you bring her up in context of this album, too, because um, the other thing about Billie Eilish, especially her first album, um, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? Well, I mean, that's her first real album. Um, full length. Full length album. Yeah. Um, she a lot of that was made in her bedroom. Like she specifically like was like experimenting with different kinds of percussion, different kinds of sounds and stuff in like her house. And so it wasn't as an album, it mostly wasn't created in like a recording studio. I don't know much about Bjork's whole production process when it comes to her albums, but from some of the things on this album specifically, the percussion really reminds me of kind of that more like homemade, more um, trying different kinds of samples and different kinds of beats to create this. Um, So it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm not a music scholar, so I could be wrong here, but Vespertine is one of the first albums that's like partially made on a laptop. Mm-hmm. And Vespertine, Kid A, there are some other examples of albums that 
that is the turning point when we're making music that sounds good through earbuds instead of making music that sounds good through car stereos. Well, that's a that's a good point. Um, I'm seeing all this full of love behind you. you by I the know way. it's a fucking great point. <laughs> it really is. No, I was just I was I would have said more, but I saw all this full of love behind you. I saw the robots. Um, <laughs> Same no, with earbuds and through like laptop, you know, tinny little uh, laptop yeah. speakers. You know, Vespertine is an album that sounds good through those formats, and that's something like pop music is still catching up to that. You know. Over the last few years, pop music production has been heavily influenced by the fact that people are streaming instead of, mm-hmm. you know, listening on physical media or even like high bitrate MP3s or something. And Bjork was, Bjork, Radiohead, and a few other people were like very much ahead of the curve on, you know, this, to work in this situation, we need to mm-hmm. do something different. I feel like Jared, like you have a good laugh every so often when you hear people talk about <laughs> fidelity these days. You know, spatial audio. We're talking about Westworld now. Vinyl. What's going on? <laughs> I uh, so Vespertine has just a lot of album of the year consideration. It's on so many lists. I asked you if Homogenic was considered the best album by casual listeners and critics. Is Vespertine considered the best album by less than casual listeners and critics? Is Vespertine her best album? Jarrett. Like a lot of legacy artists, Bjork has that same thing where like Mm -hmm. they were the best when you were 19 or 18 or 21 or like whenever you're like, social life peaked or whatever Well, this is it (laughs) so yeah i mean i I definitely think there's that angle to look at it i'm the wrong person to ask because best means different things depending on your price but you're the right person because you're the one on this episode (laughs) you're the one i mean if we just if we want (laughs) to skip ahead if you ask me what's bjork's best album so it's not most this days, one. Most days I'm going to say Utopia, but oh. I, uh, if you said, you know, if you said that Vespertine or Homogenic is her best album, I'm not going to get angry at you. Okay. I mean, honestly, there- there's really, with a couple exceptions, there's no album you can say is her best that I'm going to like really strongly disagree. Is Vespertine but, your favorite album? On a personal level, yes. And again, it's that, th- that same thing of like <laughs> the age and what, you know, my life was when it came out. Mm-hmm. And it, what I already mentioned of like, you know, it's very forward thinking. It's a turning point for her personally and visually and sonically, both, again, on, a, on her level, but also uh, on a global music scale, it's a turning point. But, you know. <laughs> oh wow speaking of turning points in 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 bjork's career let's just skip 10 years and go to 2011 <laughs> but before we before we no we're not gonna do that Jarrett, would you take us through a just a couple minute retrospective of the years 2001 to 2011 so we can talk about biophilia um, so I think appropriately after Vespertine, Bjork 
goes through her first like retrospective period. And this is also Vespertine is also the tour where she starts reimagining her earlier songs, which again is a that's why I say like concert uh, film Bjork, because number one, it's hard to see Bjork live. She when she does tours, she just hits like major cities. Uh, she went through a period where she was only playing like really like specific types of venues. Part of what Bjork does is is reimagine earlier songs and incorporate those into her live um, performances in a way where they work more cohesively with whatever she's doing at the time. And so that's when that starts. So then in 2002, we get like this box set retrospective and like a, a greatest hits album, you know, even though she'd only had a less than a handful of albums at that point. There's a, a new track on there in our hands. Spike Jones is the video again for that. And this is where we really get into Bjork, the experimental avant-garde pop artist. Um, Medulla is the follow-up album that is a album that is all synthesized voices or not, not really even like affected. Like a, it's part of the only thing from Medulla I can, I included on that video playlist is like, a short documentary about the making of it because that's the I love Medulla it's a great album but the like really notable thing about it is that it's all human voices like Mike Patton for example making all these different sounds and it sounds completely unique because of that but still like very much Bjork uh, the next year is the before mentioned Drawing Restraint 9 which is the like peak of Matthew Barney and Bjork collaborating. It's a film in his, uh, one of his art series. Bjork does all the music for it. Um, I should have gotten them out. They're in the basement in the storage, but uh, a friend of mine actually DIY'd a Barbie and Ken doll to be Bjork and Matthew Barney from Drawing straight nine. Tried to give her. Tried to give them to one of our other friends who refused to take them. <laughs> but um, drawing restraint nine is certainly a touch point for Bjork among my some of my friends. I saw that in the theater. Um, that kind of you know gives you an idea of my like history and dedication and relationship to Bjork. There were maybe like. A dozen other people in that in the theater on like a weekend screening, I think it was. I don't remember for sure. But the next year is Volta, which is an album that's very much influenced by working on Drawing Restraint Nine because it's her most like uh, environmentally activist album. It's her most punk album, and it's like in its messaging and in its production and stuff like that from her solo career, of course. This is where I want to mention that, like, Bjork, like most solo pop artists from her original era, does a lot of covers. Less so in the 21st century, but she has done some. She recorded a cover for the, like, Bond theme tribute album that came out in the late 90s. It did not get included. I don't know why. Um, but you can find it. It's on that playlist. If you can listen to Bjork's cover of uh, Joni Mitchell's Boho Dance and 
not want to cry, then I guess you've had more therapy than I have. (laughs) (laughs) And Joni Mitchell, I I want to include that because I think that's an artist who, like some of the others we've mentioned, has influenced Spurek and a lot of the other people that we've been talking about. Um, And then uh, she performs at Alexander McQueen's funeral. That's another thing that's on that playlist. Uh, She does a Billie Holiday cover of that performance. It's Gloomy Sunday, is that the song? And then she does a, I guess it's technically a LP with um, Dirty Projectors which is another like very like nature focused themes. It's like basically about seeing a whale, I think is what the <laughs> album's about. Um or being a whale or something. Uh but that's come kind of back into the spotlight because it got a re-release for a record store day, which is happening as we're recording and there's like unreleased material on that. I don't think I put it in the playlist, but there's a video of Dirty Projectors on YouTube performing and then they're just like it's like a small show and they're like and, and now we're very happy to bring out Bjork to perform with us and it's like oh my god what like if I, I use this as a comparison to my my partner Shannon recently of like them freaking out about Adam Scott being on a nailed it or something it's like <laughs> I, I get it because if I was at some little rinky-dink indie show and Bjork showed up, I would probably have a heart attack. So <laughs> I think that catches us up. So, you know, you mentioned a lot of the nature-focused or nature-centric. That seems to be a big theme that develops and that plays into biophilia, which we listened to right before bedtime. Might have been a mistake, or it wasn't. It was definitely one of those two things. But this is this is an album that has a lot going on. <laughs> and and I'm not saying that they all don't, but this one really does. It's it seems to be from what I read inspired in some of the same ways, Jared, that you've been talking about that have inspired her for the years before. Uh, there's also mention of this album being if not influenced, but but an after effect of, I don't know if collaboration is the right word, but um, connection with Sigurus. This album also has apps. <laughs> What's going on? So Biophilia is an album that continues uh, something that started with Vespertine, which is like creating bespoke instruments to create music or reproduce music that was created in the studio or in some other way. Um, so like Vespertine is music boxes and her latest output has been like these handcrafted flutes and stuff like that. Um, but the whole, like I talked about her being like this fusion of organic and electronic and, you know, homogenic is a starting point for that. That's her like making music that's influenced by nature. So, you know, it, it all fits together. But yeah, Biophilia is like her planet Earth. The, the Not like the thing, but like the nature series, um, basically. Like she works with David Attenborough on that. He like recorded this intro for the apps and for the concerts. 
I mentioned in the Discord that Biophilia Live is available on Voodoo. That's not the first concert film that I recommend to people when it comes to Bjork, but um, it's certainly a very, very good one. It's maybe the second or third one I would recommend to people. What was what was your experience with this one, Tessa? Well, like you said, we were listening to this right before bed, so I definitely like not I wasn't half asleep, but I was definitely like very relaxed into this music, so I don't remember like specific songs um all that well, but I really liked a lot of how this album leaned a little bit more into that organic sound which makes sense considering like the the themes of the album um but it, it still had like those things that were recognizably bjork in terms of like playing around with different like percussive styles um and trying um different different tempos especially when layered over some of those more like you said bespoke instruments um Jarrett. I I can't tell you which song this is because I was like half asleep when this happened, but I do you remember I like turned to you and I was like what is happening in this song? Because uh there's a song and I don't know if it's like an organ or like a synthesizer or something, but it almost sounds like at the beginning she's it's not chopsticks, but it's a chopsticks-esque sound that she's making and then it speeds up throughout the course of the song and it it is almost terrifying <laughs> like um the way that this sounds and like it that kind of thing she's clearly still experimenting even if it's not maybe as uh loud as it was um in some of her previous albums so i enjoyed it i don't know if i enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed vespertine but I wonder it was if it's crystalline that you're thinking about. I'll have to go back and listen to it again um, because it was very interesting. So like one of the things she's doing with those bespoke instruments is like doing polyrhythms and uh, like one of the songs she uses, like uh, I think they call it a gra- gravity harp, but it's like an instrument that is played by the Earth's uh, gravity. So one of the clips in that playlist is a video of it being installed at MoMA. And it's like, you see this piece of art, and if you know the song Solstice, which is also in the playlist, like it's so interesting to me to see a visual representation of an element of a song, like a physical, like you see that, you've listened to what it does, and it's like, oh, that's that part of that song. That's the element of that song. So there's a lot of stuff like that. But Crystalline has this really like high pitched. I do think that part might be electronic, and it's very like a rhythmic might be the right word. Like, yeah, it, it kind of sounds. If it's the, the song, tempo, yeah. if it's the song, the same song I was thinking of. It's almost. It feels very much like somebody's like using their index fingers to like pick out like the notes instead mm. of playing it. There's a few songs on there like that, but yeah, that's definitely one that sticks out in my memory that has that element. But it also has like, that's also the song, one of the songs on uh, Biophilia that's very like homogenic sounding. Like there's also also elements of that song that just sound like a record scratch or like someone DJing basically. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, part of the reason I, I... care more about 21st century Bjork is because that's when she is 
synthesizing her taste and elements of her music as a whole rather than like okay here's this one thing i've figured out for this album or whatever and biophilia to me is a starting point for that and if anybody's listening to us try to describe what's happening on biophilia (laughs) and thinks this is like way too experimental for me it's not is the thing like it is actually very i mean it is but it's not um when I when people tend to describe albums as experimental, they tend to like in a derogatory way, they tend to be like, oh, that's too like disjointed or I, it's not enjoyable to listen to. This is a very enjoyable album to listen to, um, as well as you being able to pick out those things that she's really experimenting with. I agree. That album has uh, like some of her other albums um, post, for example, has a. Uh, sibling release which is like remixes and stuff like that um for biophilia it's called bastards and like there's some a couple death grips remixes and um, some really cool stuff on that release too now i know you're gonna be shocked when i say this but there's a little uh little indie publishing music outlet called pitchfork I don't know. Maybe you've heard of them. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they, they don't. They, they, they don't. Uh, they don't seem to uh, appreciate this one as much as uh, some might. And and I've read. And as I was listening to the album, I was like, okay, what's going on? So I'm reading about it. I'm reading about the apps and the relationship with Apple and Android and just all the you know the, the reviews and stuff. And so. You know, the the things that I wanted you to react to that I came across were this album is a failed experiment or is an album, which if it's an experiment and it happens, can it be a failed experiment? That's actually like the only failed experiment is an experiment that doesn't happen, right? I don't know. That's the whole thing. But basically saying that, and this is where that kind of multimedia thing comes in. If you divorce this work from everything but the album some have said that this is kind of a sloppy album and 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 that's just to say like that's not what i'm saying that's what other people have said but you know is is this an experiment beyond the concept of the album if so how do we feel about that and either way considering there were so many elements to this other than a traditional album, is it fair to level that kind of criticism at the album in particular? Well, this is another one that in thinking about biophilia, I would really, really encourage people. If you don't have patience for the entire podcast series to, (laughs) if you just listen to one to listen to the biophilia a podcast from her series that lit up that went with her new album because she talks about so much of what went on with that and that these apps were used to like go into schools and teach kids about music and not about like well here's the western canon and here's <laughs> the a a major scale and here's the a minor scale but like teach kids that like anybody can make music and that like you, you know, don't need to pay someone on YouTube to teach you guitar or something like that. (laughs) Like, sorry, you mentioned P 
pitchfork and put me in a bad mood. I know. I know. Because <laughs> I, I'm sorry that Biophilia wasn't made by a white guy in a cabin. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And I and I love I love Boney Bear. Like Justin Vernon is another like I feel a very influential and important artist of this century, but yeah, white cis man making songs about yeah girls he wasn't emotionally involved evolved enough to be successful <laughs> with. Like I you know Oh, we have fun here on Monkey Off My Backlog. <laughs> Justin, no hard feelings. <laughs> I don't know. Um I okay. I, I I see a, I see a place to transition, and at this point in my life, I'm trying to take all of those I can. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, but you mentioned okay, so you mentioned the desire for that's a good segue, actually. <laughs> I am excited it, about what not, just maybe happened. Maybe not intentionally. <laughs> you 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 put it out there, and I took it. But you mentioned you mentioned the adjective prospect or intention behind biophilia with the apps and and you know trying to and we've really been talking about that for we've taken a couple breaks so it's been however long it's been um but this this very intentional move of trying to break away from attitudes that we have as listeners and and ways of making music and you know trying to as you just said uh, allow people to think about making music differently and and approaching education differently, which is which is which is very forward, future looking. And what better way to keep the party going than to create an album called Utopia? And that and that neat in 2017 of all times. <laughs> but you know, I I read something she said, and I was. <laughs> She said that she wanted, this broke me. I broke when I saw this. An organizing concept of utopia. And see, and by the way, this is why place-based utopias are impossible. She nailed it. I'm so proud. The reason that place-based utopias are impossible is they'll never happen. Because the organizing principle of utopia is a perfection, a perfect place. For whomst. Is it a perfect place? Bjork calls it fascistic. And I broke when I realized that trying to create utopia is a fascist tendency. But then I realized she's right. Because that's what dystopia is. It's fascism run amok. So of course she made that in 2017. Because the year before is the year the world really went to shit. (laughs) And I'm not saying it didn't happen before that, but that's the year we got there. We arrived in... No, and I think she... Again, that's something like she is, you know, looking at things through that perspective. So uh, just to take a step back, a couple steps back, <laughs> I, I already mentioned that... You're like, step step back from the ledge. It's okay. 2013, her and Matthew Barney have a contentious divorce. So the album before Utopia, Utopia that said, you know, this could be have been the starting point for this podcast. And we would just talk about the newest three albums. Well, Nakira, um, that is the album she wins the Brit Award for. Uh, but this is the, the post Barney thing 
is the beginning of her collaboration with the producer and musical artist Arca, who most people would know from Jesus and uh, FKA Twigs' early output. So this is, if you can think of it like, uh, Arca working with Bjork is Arca being even more experimental and more like pushing things. Volnikur is actually an album, I think partially coming back to it from uh, getting really into a lot of Arca's pro- prolific output over the last two or three years. Like, putting out the same number of albums that Bjork has done in the whole century <laughs> um, in, in just a few years. But um, so it, that's an album that I appreciate a lot more. And like, if I were picking this list today, I think, you know, I, I might have included that maybe instead of Utopia. I don't know. Obviously you guys didn't listen to that album. I am not sure which one is more accessible. I just Utopia is like a culminative thing to mm-hmm. me. Um and Volnicura is so remorseful and it it's it's you know it's a lot of it is about mourning the past. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's about that huge breakup and upheaval in her relationship and Utopia Utopia is the album where she starts to look forward and starts to think about the world as a whole again, which is why it's like, it's positive and hopeful, but it, yeah, it is also like not because of what's going on and her like thinking about all the like restrictive legislation that continues to uh, uh, unravel and stuff. And uh, I, I, you know, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I think this album's pretty dope. Oh, good. I, I and I say that because I think another way that you could describe it, and this is very misleading, if you haven't heard any of the album, but I would describe it as smooth. Mm. And and I and I I immediately second guess myself until you see that one of the uh, defining characteristics or defining influences of this album, according to her, is air. You know, it's very fluty. It's very, very smooth. Yeah, th- yeah. There's a lot of flutes on the last two albums, so yeah, that kind of makes sense. And she started I'm telling this you, thing flutes are like, coming back in a big way. Okay, Lizzo, calm down. <laughs> She's had this 21st century trend of like working with all female choirs. Uh, you know, we talked about Medulla being an album that's all like human voice, so I can see that. There's a lot of bird sounds. Um, her. <laughs> version of utopia is like birds and humans have like evolved into each other thus the i guess that's the visual imagery mm. that scares you is that where that's coming from oh no that's the album cover that's just and i understand yeah, yeah, that's what i mean the album cover is like her trying to okay. like what would a bird human hybrid look like okay that is not what that would look like and if it is <laughs> i don't want to live in that world that is a nightmare that is a that is that is if you are wearing that mask and you wake me up in the middle of the night, that's a one way trip to murder town. <laughs> okay, because that is a nightmare. I don't like it. 
That is not what it would look like. <laughs> so I, I, I oh, so God. for the first time, like shout out my uh, uh, fellow podcaster, someone that we've talked a lot about, like the feminine in art and stuff. Melissa, one of the things we've talked about a lot is the like tradition of the feminine being associated with nature and that that being dangerous, you know, putting it in the context of utopia, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne is a great, is full of examples of that, of nature, bad woman, bad, dark, evil, mysterious. And, and so I think utopia and sort of, I, I do actually don't know how to pronounce the new album, <laughs> which is bad because I've heard a lot, her and a lot of people talk about that's, it. That's but, great. I, um, yeah. The mushroom album. <laughs> yeah. I have something. Tessa, you have Utopia is birds. Fossarora, whatever, is mushrooms. So what you're saying is, is the new album's called The Last of Us. It is weird how uh, influential fungus is in the, current culture. Like, there's a whole yeah. sporer, uh, yeah. you know, mushroom-based horror. Is it fungus-based horror? Yeah. Is the whole thing. Fungi is having a real moment right it, now. It really is. Yeah. Um, it's Living interesting. up to its name. It's interesting that you mentioned the whole like the feminine associated with nature, which has a really long running tradition in Western art, especially um, because that it's interesting because, yes, the way that a lot of men in literature have associated femininity with nature is like it's dangerous. It's unreliable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's te- tempestuous, like all of that kind of thing. Um, but then you get that imagery that's reclaimed by second wave feminism where they're like, oh, well, no, like, you know, women are goddesses, you know, like we're going to this is like very hippie. Right. Um, like they're, you know, they're part of the earth and like the earth is a mother and like, you know, all of that stuff. There is like this this backlash against it in the 90s where, you know, we become more into cyborg feminism with Donna Haraway and like the idea, like, I would rather be a cyborg than a goddess. But then I wanted to read this because I think this actually is where Bjork kind of is um, when when we get to these last like few albums where she's really trying to like talk about nature, but then also talk about like femininity. Um, Yasbir Poir, um, who is a theorist who is really great, but very difficult to read sometimes. I'm sorry. I love her, but she is very difficult. Um, she wrote a piece that's actually called, um, I would rather be a cyborg than a goddess, but she says at, in the very last paragraph, cause she talks about how those two things are presented as oppositional, but they really shouldn't be. Um, because third wave feminism, there's a lot of different ways to be a woman, she says, to return to the title of this piece and the juxtaposition that Haraway, unfortunately but presently, renders, would I rather be a cyborg than a goddess? The former hails the future in a theological, technological determinism culture that seems not only overdetermined, but also exceptionalizes our current technologies. The latter, nature, is embedded in the radicalized matriarchal mythos of feminist reclamation narratives. Certainly it sounds sexier this these days to lay claim to being a cyborg than a goddess, but why desegregate the two when surely there must be cyborgian goddesses in our midst? Now that is a becoming intersectional assemblage that I could really appreciate. Cyborgian goddess seems like a great way of describing Bjork, and I'm really glad that you two brought that up because... Like it solved a problem that was existing mm-hmm. in my mind before this album. 
Well, just remember, by the way, the second wave feminism, like there's no better place to talk about it than, and I, Jared, you might've asked something about this in the past. I don't remember, but uh, the laugh of the Medusa mm. is, that is yeah, the text. A, <laughs> that that is the text. That's a callback <laughs> that I often make. <laughs> it's one of the few things that I can pull out of my pocket. But it's that it's that exhortation to to be aware of the body and use the body. It's what you got, and and you know she demands that using right through the body, right of the body, right with the body, and and that sounds great. I mean that's why it's one of the the seminal texts of second wave feminism because it just sounds great. It sounds great to say that women haven't gotten the credit as creators, as artists, as writers, because their bodies have been oppressed, repressed by the others and themselves. And just stop it. Just stop. Unfortunately, of course, it's very essential. And, and you know, it says uh, who decides what a woman's body is, which is, of course, the big problem. Fortunately, cyborgs fix that. Yeah, exactly. Because you have, it's real self. To, I mean, but that's the thing, right? Like, you know, Sesu was trying to say, like, this is self-determination using your body. And and all these cyborg folks, Haraway and friends, come along and say, no, no. Self-determination is actually determining what your body is. Not what to do with it, but literally what it is. Very helpful. Right. It's just, just not the bird horror thing. Come on, man. <laughs> well, I just think that it's interesting that Bjork, especially later on with Biophilia and Utopia, seems very interested in this narrative of, okay, like I am a cyborg, but what does that mean in my relationship to nature? Like, what does that mean in my relationship to utopia, dystopia, I the future? I want to lob a grenade in here. Just an absolute at the end of the episode. Oh, my God. Something that will just explode and leave this episode in tatters. You know who the polar opposite of Bjork is in terms of an exploration <laughs> of, of body, bodily autonomy, music, all of it? You ready? Polar opposite. Lana Del Rey. I'll take the. Yeah, actually, that makes complete sense. I'm not right? sure that's actually a grenade. The, the ultra <laughs> femininity, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. The vulnerability. And, yeah. Yeah. I think Which this may be wife. apocryphal, but I think Bjork was quoted somewhere as saying that she's not interested in no norm core sexually. Um, <laughs> which I think Donna Del Rey is very interested in. Right. I, if I can say that as a non-expert. You, you can. And what I would say is that Lana Del Rey is fascinating for somebody who's like, oh, I finally get to explore all of this. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's like a noob's guide to femininity. <laughs> <laughs> I just love, I love that somebody. Source. Me. My favorite. Source. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're like completely digressing at this point. But my favorite thing like that Lana Del Rey has ever done was that she was criticized online a lot for basically no. saying that femininity should like is defined this one way. And of course she was criticized for that. And the way she defined it was very white feminist and she was criticized for that. And of course her response was, I hate the way that I've been criticized online. I'm going to write an album and three books of poetry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just like, all right, 
Okay, fine. Here at, here at Monkey Off My Backlog, much like Bjork, we contain multitudes. Yeah. And by the way, fuck, fuck Walt Whitman. Bjork may wrote one, maybe two songs about someone trying to kill her. Like, let's compare those reactions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I and I, I will say as we sort of transition to this last part, which I'm going to give Sam back the control here in a second. That's a mistake. I, I have to say that, like, obviously Bjork has a very specific point of view. She is a white woman from Iceland. You know, like that, that is a very specific culture and cultural context. But like you said, I think that part of what makes her so great is this idea of exploring multiplicity in her perspectives and that might come from the fact that she has traveled the world and she's really like soaked in a lot of the different kinds of music and a lot of the different kinds of perspective um but i do think she has more of a cyborg perspective but she is still very interested in the idea of what it means to be a goddess as well so i see her as being a good balance between the two that's cool we could put janelle monae on the other side as the cyborg so it's cyborg Janelle Monet, cyborg goddess, Bjork, Lana Del Rey goddess. Oh, good Lord. We've done some work today. <laughs> Did we create a new theory of music? Please don't. You're hurting me. So what have we learned today? I can tell you what I learned. What have you learned, Tessa? I learned that people have been hiding Bjork from me because nobody was like, this is something you would really like. I have asked you to watch Dancer in the Dark with me. Oh, my God. No. I don't want to be introduced to Bjork that way. (laughs) Um, I just don't like (laughs) Lars von Trier. Anyway, um, so I'm just saying, like, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I like a lot of the people that we've mentioned. So Bjork fits right in there. I plan on re-listening to these albums and definitely listening to the ones that we skipped. So thank you both for giving me this opportunity to dig into someone that I actually really like. All right. Jarrett, final thoughts. Well, you know, I feel like I manifested Strange Days being on HBO and I manifested a Criterion release for Watermelon Woman. So uh, let's manifest a accessible. um, You can rent it a couple places online, but let's let's uh, manifest a a current physical release of Juniper Tree and let's watch that instead of. Okay. I think it's, um, I believe, uh, that the current, only current release, I think, is region locked. Don't quote me on that. So I, I may have just, like, spoken too soon, and maybe there is actually one. <laughs> you manifested it. Good job. <laughs> oh, wow. You did it. Retroactively, probably. All right. Jarrett, will you come back to help me take Tessa through the wonderful world of trip hop? Yeah, and post is a good starting point. <laughs> and, and and I just want to say, when that happens, when we have our trip hop conversation, there will be no sour times, no teardrops. <laughs> it's all part of the process. Twicky. All right. Next time. Did you know that a new Fast and Furious movie is about to be unleashed upon the world? I did know that. You did? <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? We haven't talked about Fast and Furious 9 on this very podcast yet. That's right. We did a whole mini-series, but 9 hadn't come out yet. So if you're thinking, gosh, is Megan going to come on to talk about Fast and Furious 9 before the release of Fast and Furious 10? Why do you ask questions you already know the answers to? (laughs) In the meantime, Jarrett, where can people find you online? 
Well, the best place right now is uh, Ger Noise on Instagram. That's G R R Noise. But I'm co-host, co-producer of the podcast Wild Pretty Things, which for now at least you can find on uh, podcast apps. Tessa, you can find Wait, me. Wait, hold on. Let me. Okay, that was a little Tessa. <laughs> <laughs> You can find me on Twitter and Storygraph and Letterboxd at The Bi Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. And you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. We'd like to know your thoughts on Bjork or who you'd like the subject of our next musical spotlight to be. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog and in our Discord community linked in the show notes. You can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>